This is episode 37 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back for part two of our frank discussion with Matt Ward. Um, Originally, like I said, we sat down to do um, an episode about report writing, and it kind of really turned into a three-part series just because there's so much good stuff in here, you guys, and I really didn't want it to all get hidden, basically. So I broke it up into three pretty distinct parts. This is part two, and... In this episode, Matt and I will be talking about the importance of a protocol when completing instrumental assessments. Uh, So both for SLPs that are doing the assessments, but also SLPs that are on the receiving ends of these reports and why it can be so important for continuity of of care. So that's what we talk about in this episode. We also do start to talk about report writing in this episode um, and a lot of things that you should include in your report. And then in part three, we cover everything about recommendations because let's face it that's reality that is the meat and potatoes of our report so that's in whether we want to admit it or not that 99.9 percent of the time that's where people are going to go read first so uh, that really can make or break your patient it can help or harm your patient so that is we've saved that for an entire episode so that is part three but today um, we will be talking about all about the importance of a protocol so uh, as always, I want to thank our sponsor, EndoHD. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. This week's episode is brought to you by the Medical SLP Solution Monthly Membership. What would it feel like if every week delivered right to you were resources that included videos and handouts about topics that affect the way we treat our patients every day? Well, that is exactly what the Medical SLP Solution Membership is. Every week, we send you a two- to three-page handout, including an intro, why, how, and instructions about topics chosen by the members, including dysphagia, aphasia, dysarthria, pediatric swallowing, voice, just to name a few. They are all reviewed by university professors to ensure APA format of the references, and the professors also usually add in some recommended readings if you want to dive further into that topic. I also record about a 10-minute video of that topic, so if you don't want to waste trees or if you don't have time to read, just get your weekly 10-minute topic in on the way to work. Some of the topics that we've covered include how to do a cranial nerve assessment, lab values that the medical SLP should be aware of, how drugs can affect dysphagia, how to complete oral care, the neural control of swallowing, infant-driven feeding. So lots of great topics that we've already covered. And our members also have access to an exclusive private Facebook group or private forum where you can post anonymously if you would like, which is run by experts in various areas of the field ready to answer your difficult patient questions. And if you don't have time to check social media or check the forum, no sweat. Every Friday, I email a weekly roundup of the resources for the week, as well as links to all of the excellent questions and incredible responses by our moderators. So if you missed a really great discussion, you can click right to it. No more FOMO. That's fear missing out. So I provide all that to you every Friday. And this is all topped off with an exclusive monthly webinar for our community members. That also includes a Q&A session, and that will be accredited for ASHA CEUs starting in May. 
So if this sounds like something you're absolutely interested in, whether you're a complete newbie to the field, you're a CF on Dysphagia Island desperate for support, you're a mom of five kids with 20 years experience and no clue if you've kept up with the latest research, then head over to medslpsolution.com to join anytime. You get access to all of this for just $25 a month, but you may want to jump in soon because we are going to close down registration sometime in May to get ready for those upcoming CEU webinars. So don't delay, join the community now, and feel free to ask away. Oh, but I did want to mention, so coming up in April, our webinar will be on writing appropriate MBS and fees reports. So everything that you should include in your documentation when you write these reports. And also we'll be looking at some really good reports. So basically helping to dissect what makes a good report. So if you guys are writing these reports yourself, maybe you can pick up a few tips, but also maybe if you are on the receiving end of these reports, you now may be able to, you know, tell your counterpart, tell your colleague, hey, can you maybe add a little bit more about this? So that's what we're diving into in April for our upcoming webinar. And then in May, our webinar is going to be all about esophageal dysphagia. So Miss Julie Huffman is coming on to do our May webinar, and that one will be registered for ASHA CEUs. So anyone that is in the Medical SLP Solution membership will have access to that. It's included in the membership, no extra charge. And then in June, we have Megan Sutton will be coming on to talk about aphasia treatment. She will be doing our June webinar, and that will also be for ASHA CEUs. So if you're in the membership, again, that's included with your membership. So if any of those webinars interest you, as well as the weekly resources that I talked about and our support Facebook group and other online forum, make sure you go to medmedslpsolution.com to sign up. And we will, like I said, we will be closing down registration coming up in May to get ready for all these CU courses. So uh, hop in, join in now. We'd love to have you. And that's enough of me blabbing again. So here is part two of our report writing series with Matt Ward. Let's go on, talk just a little bit about, I guess we're going to finally get into writing the report. Not so much writing the report, but understanding that Writing the report is all about uh, how you do the study, um, how you order your study, how and not order like the doctor orders your study, but how, the order in which you do things, the way in which you do things, the reason for which you do things all impact the writing. So I, I come from, like I said before, the John Ashford School of using protocols. Um, Dr. Ashford always says, do the same thing every time. And while that may cramp some people's style and it may not seem like, you know, I'm an expert, I shouldn't be able to go off the protocol because I understand what's going on with this patient. The more swallow studies I do, the more I realize that, that yeah, there are things I add to every protocol almost, uh, but it makes it a whole lot easier. Um, some of the benefits of going with a well thought out protocol are uh, it gra you can gradually increase from easier to swallow bolus amounts and consistencies to harder consistencies. That way you don't, let's say, give someone three ounces of liquid barium to swallow all at once and they aspirate and you stop the study. Um, that's a lot of people would aspirate on three ounces of, of, of barium continuous sip. Um, if you start with a teaspoon, maybe not. Um, so it allows you to gradually increase that. Uh, it allows for test retest reliability. If I do a swallow study on a patient uh, that I did a swallow study on a month ago, I'm going to do the same basic study. 
So my comparison for those two tests is really, really good. Um, uh, unless there's some really rare reason that I had to stop the test, those two tests are going to be nearly identical. And so making comparisons, I can tell the, if it's me that I did the modified on the patient in the hospital, I can tell if my therapy has been beneficial. Um, if it's a, another clinician that I'm working with, I'm saying, Hey, look, our first fees was two months ago and our second fees is now, and looks like the therapy has been helpful because now look at this. They were once doing X, now they're doing Y. Um, so it allows for you to have good test retest reliability. It allows for good inter-rater reliability. And that's a big one for me. Inter-rater reliability sounds like something you learned in grad school about tests that made them good. And you're like, oh, it has good inter-rater reliability. But that's really where the rubber meets the road for us as a profession, if you ask me. It, doing dysphagia is a little bit like kind of the Wild West. We kind of are all doing our own thing and don't tell me what to do and my protocol is this. And that's one of the big issues we have in our field is, is some patients don't want to do, or some, uh, some clinicians don't want to do something because they've always done it one way. Um, but especially if you think about it, you've got, uh, let's say a lot of centers have more than one speech therapist there. Um, if you have one speech therapist who does their protocols one way and everyone else is doing it a different way, um, that's not good for the patients. That's not good for the docs. That's not good for the nurses. That's not really good uh, for anyone. We all need to be doing the same things for the same reasons. Um, and so doing a protocol has good inter-rater reliability. It, it means you and the speech therapist who did the test last time, your results are, com are comparable. Oh, well, that's nice. If our results are comparable, then just because someone different did your test last time doesn't mean um, that, that I don't know that you're doing better now or worse now. Um, so that's really a big one for me. Um, it also gives your, if you use a protocol, it gives your patient uh, a chance to fail. This was a, another big point that, that my mentor made to me. Uh, we were doing, I think, uh, in an aphasia class one time, we were giving one of the batteries, you know, the aphasia batteries that take six hours to give. Um, and, you know, the most of those, the, the, the questions or the prompts get harder and harder for the patients. And at some point, you're pretty sure that your patient has failed at this level and they're going to fail the next level, but you're still supposed to give this test that's, you know, 10 hours long. Um, and so I, someone in class asked, so when do you just stop? When do you stop the protocol? And some of those tests do have places where you stop if they miss X number in a row or anything like that. But it, he said something to me that has stuck with me as a clinician forever. It's always give your ch patient a chance to fail. Never assume they're going to fail. So a lot of times uh, the way that, that that matters to my daily practice is, and I'm sure you've seen patients like this too, the patient who's been NPO for three months or three years or you name it, not even ice chips. Um, the first few swallows you give those patients a lot of times are really, really bad. They're really bad. Uh, you want to stop the test. Um, but a lot of the patients, so we, we start out with our protocol with teaspoons and it's bad. And you think, Oh, well, that means that a cup sip is going to be bad. A lot of times those patients make it through the full protocol. Um, and they end up doing very, very well. There's a lot of disuse atrophy that's going on there. Um, they're not used to swallowing boluses because they haven't in so long. And if I just wrote them off, here's a patient who's been NPO for three years and the center that they're in says that they won't give them anything to eat or drink unless they quote unquote pass my test. And I go in and they aspirate on a teaspoon of thin liquids and I say, I'm out. 
Um, well, what does that do for that patient? Nothing. And it also is bad practice. Um, I need to give them a chance to fail, multiple chances to fail. Um, and we know that bolus size, bolus viscosity, um, temperature, taste, all of that uh, has an impact on the swallow. So we need to give them multiple chances to get it going um, and get it going well. And so uh, doing a protocol, using a protocol, um, also gives your patient a chance to fail. You don't just see aspiration and stop. Um, it also, for me, I, I know I, I've, I've seen a lot of comments um, on a lot of the message boards. I've heard from some um, clinicians about uh, when they're doing modifieds that the radiologist may not want to spend much time on them, may not, may just seem generally disinterested, um, all, all kind of things where there's, there's just maybe some professional issues between the, the docs and them. And what I found was when I use a protocol with my modifieds is my radiologists and I, our lives got a whole lot better because I did the same thing every time. So my radiologist knows how much longer the test is going to be, basically. He knows exactly what's coming next. Um, it makes it a whole lot easier on everybody. They know where you are in the process. Um, so I found that actually, it is, shockingly enough, of all the things that you could do, like, oh, I'll send them candy or I'll talk to them about their favorite sports team, having a protocol, as boring as that sounds, made my relationship with all of my docs better. That's as weird as it, it sounds like, oh, that's talk about nerd alert. Having a yes. protocol helps, uh, helps your relationship. No, that's great. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, the other thing that it does, and since we're talking about writing reports and we still haven't talked about writing reports, um, it, the, having a protocol structures the test in a way that makes it easier for you to write later. You're not just throwing something in here and throwing something in there and saying, maybe this will work here and maybe it'll work there. Typically, I go through my protocol and I then start trying compensatory strategies, and that's the way I go. Um, and so since I know that, from the moment I start my study, in my head I'm writing. And I don't have to be burdened by what I'm going to do next because I know what I'm going to do next. And if I'm in radiology, the tech who may be assisting me knows what I'm going to do next. So my brain is free to start analyzing and start writing my report during the study. Um, which is very, it's a, it's a uh, big point for therapists who have high productivity demands. For those of us who do mobile fees, sometimes we have a long time to write. Um, but when I'm in a hospital and I've got 10 other patients to see um, and the room has to be used in just a few minutes and I don't have much time to review, uh, it is very, very helpful to be able to start thinking about what I'm going to write from the moment the test starts as opposed to having to wait till the end. So... Um, that's a word about protocols, for me, at least. Um, there are times to deviate from protocols. There are certainly times to deviate from protocols. Um, if your patient is not doing well, sometimes you've got to uh, bail out. Uh, some patients have difficulty tolerating tests for whatever reasons. Uh, maybe their respiratory stats drop and, uh, or whatever reason. Uh, they become somnolent. You, you name it. Lots of different reasons. Um for you to be to, to have to stop a test, um, and, and that certainly happens. But if you've got a protocol, at least you have tried multiple things before you stop. Um, let's see. Uh, aspiration on a single consistency is never a reason to stop a study. I say never, and I did have uh, a three-trial study on a patient one time, and it was three ice chips. 
um, and I had to stop the study. Now I will say this, um, the patient had nearly absent swallow. Nothing was going past the UES um, and we tried three ice chips. Uh, it was still a 17 minute long study um, because I wanted to see if we could get her airway clear. <laughs> uh, wanted to see if any compensatory strategies worked. I wanted to see if she was strong enough to cough that back up into the oral cavity so it could be suction. Um, so even though I bailed out after, after three, and that's the only time that's ever happened, um, it was still a 15-minute long study, not a 30-second long study. Where I had a woman that was about the same. I think I think I only got two ice chips, and then we stopped because same thing. It took like 15, 16 minutes just to get those two, and it just wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, and that's so, so that that kind of thing is going to happen for the clinicians who are saying, "I've done this for a while. You can't tell me that there's never a reason to stop after one consistency." I'm going to say never because really it is just about as good as never. Um, you should never it's like stop. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, yeah. Right, you, and even though even when you're in there, this lady's aspirating the whole time, but I'm getting good information, um, and I've got a good baseline for her. And we went back and did a fees a couple months later on the lady and she had improved and we could show improvement because we didn't just take one look at one nice chip and we're done. Um, so it, it makes a big deal. Um, it keeps you from stopping the study too soon, I guess, uh, too soon. That's, that's my biggest point about having a protocol and giving your patients a chance to fail. All right. <clears throat> so we were talking a little bit about protocols. I, I will talk just a little bit since I've done a, a fair number of fees and a fair number of modifieds. Um, just to be thinking about protocols, if you're thinking about putting a protocol together, what do you want your protocol to look like? How many trials do you want it to be? Um, for me, protocols need to stress the system to failure. The last thing I end with all of my protocols, <clears throat> if the patient is appropriate, if the patient is not, we don't do this, but if a patient has made it through every bit of the protocol, they're going to get a three ounce water trial at the end, um, because that's a really good stress of the system. Uh, so if you're thinking about putting your protocols together, what you want, what you don't want, um, how long you want them to be, uh, there are a few differences in modifieds um, and fees. Uh, just for, there's no, there's no radiation fees. So there are fewer restrictions on time. Uh, for me, at the hospital where I do modifieds, um, there is a buzzer or an alarm or whatever you want to call it. this really loud sound that happens at five minutes of exposure time and the MD has to press a button and press other buttons and we have to wait and hold on and we can still keep recording if we need to keep going. But once you go past five minutes, it, it, it's a real hassle for everybody. Um, and you it, quite frankly, the entire tray of food out of right. sure. And yeah. you want, you want your patients to be exposed to as little radiation as possible. That goes without saying. Um, even though there's not as much in a modified, you just, you, you want as little exposure as possible. So what I found for me is that my protocol for modifieds was too long. I was consistently going to that buzzer. It was frustrating for the patient, frustrating for me. I was running out of time to try compensatory strategies. So uh, what a protocol looks like for a modified and fees is a little bit different for me. Uh, I have a more scaled back protocol um, for modifieds that allows me to really get into uh, postural things or compensatory strategies, um, things like that, uh, because there are time constraints. Uh, with these, uh, I, had a, I really didn't like it, but I had like a 30-minute study one time with a guy who just was so determined. He was really young, and we used the fees as biofeedback for him, um, and he wanted to just keep trying and different things. And um, so we had a 30-minute study versus 
it, it's hard to do a study in five minutes with modified. Um, so if you're thinking, if you're out there and thinking about putting together protocols, just know that time is, is part of your issue uh, with modifieds. Um, not only specific time during the study, but also getting down to the room and, oh, we have five minutes before somebody else is coming in the room for a, a different interventional procedure. So you may have less time that way too. Um, the other thing uh, I like about modifieds is that I can see the esophagus. I can't with fees. So the other reason that our fees protocol is a little bit longer is I like to load our patients up with a good bit of volume so I can get a hint if there is anything going on further past the UES. Um, if you have dysmotility or reflux, a lot of times you're going to see evidence of that as the volume of your study, the total volume that you've given that patient, solids and liquids and everything. As that builds, a lot of times you'll start to see some evidence of that on fees. Um, that's another reason that I, I do more trials with, with fees just because I, I want to get kind of a glimpse uh, at, at what might be going on down below and if they need a referral to GI or something to be thinking about if you're putting together a protocol for a modified or if you're putting together a protocol for a fees. For me, I want to see more volume with a fees. Um, and it's easier to do that because you have more time. And if your facility is interested in purchasing fees equipment, check out our sponsor, EndoHD. EndoHD is a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. They combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make one of the best imaging devices in the country. You can go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. And EndoHD has easy-to-operate fees equipment with fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fees study review, and customizable fees report template is provided. So check them out at ndohd.com forward slash contact. All right. You ready to talk about report writing? Yes. Yes, finally. <laughs> uh, so we hadn't really talked about report writing yet other than just sort of the preamble to report writing. Um, if you're thinking about report writing again, I, I know we talked about this at the beginning, but I cannot hammer home enough the idea that report writing is not a box that you have to check so that you can bill a code. The quality of your report is based on the quality of your assessment and the quality of your patient's life is based on the quality of the report you write, not the treatment you provide in the room. You may be the best therapist in the room with the patient, but if you can't get it down on paper, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it almost doesn't matter. That report follows them forever. Your nice bedside manner does not. Um, and if you want to think about your reports, you want to understand that it's going to be read by different people. Uh, nurses are going to read your report. Doctors are going to read your report. Sometimes, depending on uh, facilities, it happens less in acute care, but it still happens. Patients and family are going to read your report. Dietitians are going to read your report. Lots of people are going to read your report. And for me, uh, it helps to write with the different readers in mind. Uh, it helps me to cover all the bases if I realize it's not just me writing this to document uh, what I did. It's writing it so that other people who have a piece of that patient and are trying to get that patient better also need to know what I did uh, and what I saw. Uh, so it helps to remember who you're writing for. And very rarely should we be writing for ourselves. We know what we did. We were there. We're writing for other people. Yeah. 
I think that that's something that I, I think I struggled with for a long time. Like I, I got really comfortable doing mobile fees with another SLP, you know, yeah. and so they're the treating SLP and I'm like, oh, you know, you saw the whole study, you, you know, you went through everything with me and, and not to say that I wrote crappier reports, but I might leave out compensatory strategies because, you know, I know the patient, the treating SLP knows the right. patient. There's no way this guy's going to be able to do a chin tuck or something. So we didn't even assess it. But I also didn't write it either, you know. And so then I would think about it down the road like, oh, crap, I hope when this patient, you know, I know they're going to get home health. I hope that the home health therapist doesn't pick up my rapport and says, oh, this person didn't even try a chin tuck. Maybe he should do a chin tuck now. Absolutely. So that's one thing that, you know, I'm like, I've got to get better at. Even if we didn't do it, I have to write why. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I, and I get that a lot. So traveling around and doing mobile fees, you end up getting to know different people. And so a lot of times I'll get a report and it'll be from a hospital or, or a hospital system or a clinician that I know. And, and the report, maybe we don't have the report or maybe we just have part of the report or we just have the, the radiologist findings, which is either not helpful or wrong a lot of the times. Um, so that's all we have. So I just call the clinician. Um, and what the clinician tells me versus what I see on paper a lot of times, you're going, oh, well, you did a very good study. That's a really thorough study. It's not always reflected on paper. Um, it's better to have it reflected on paper than to be able to tell somebody over the phone. Um, and that's hard. I, I think I, I think we all struggle with that. Uh, writing is the slowest part of our job. Uh, it, it's hard. And it's hard to say something succinctly a lot of times. Uh feels like it's taking you forever and you just need to be done and you can't figure out what you need to say and why you need to say it. And we've all been there. Um, but if you don't have good reports, then critical information about that patient is not shared with others and it's not shared for them later in life. I mean, you may see the patient two days after their stroke. Well, now you've got a clinician treating them 30 days after their stroke. That clinician knows, needs to know what you saw. It may be very different or it may be the same. They need to know. Um, so, if you are able to get the medical team this information in a clear and concise way, you've got optimized nutrition and hydration. And if you remember what we talked about earlier, that's our primary goal. Um, you've got improved quality of life. For me, sometimes that's my primary goal. <laughs> I mean, come on. We all got in this business to help people. I mean, I really think we do. If you asked everybody, that's why they got into this business is I'd like to help people. Well, instead of making ourselves barriers uh, to people's enjoyment of life. Oh, you can't have this. I'm the speech therapist. I'm coming to tell you, you have to have thickened liquids. So your coffee is going to be like sludge tomorrow. And that's all you really like is your coffee in the morning. Um, quality of life is huge for me. Just, just huge for me. And then the other thing, if you want to speak to improve patient outcomes, uh, every, every good report you have, every good report you put out, leads to better outcomes for your patients. Absolutely. If you give a clinician information that he or she can work with, your patient is going to do better every time, every time. All right. So if you want to talk about what you need in the actual report, you need all relevant medical diagnoses. And that's just about every medical diagnosis. There's almost not a diagnosis I can really think of that can't impact swallowing. Um, Dysphagia can be a symptom of one or multiple medical conditions. So good chart review is part of it. You have to do good chart review. You have to do good chart review. You have to do good chart review. Um, And then besides chart review, you got to talk to the patient because 
every you can do the greatest chart review in the world and you know you sit down with the patient and you've done all the chart review and they start telling you how they have parkinson's and that's not listed anywhere in their list of diagnoses like <laughs> yes like, yes i would have thought that would have been in there everything yes. else is listed right you know? but okay so now i know more um so you, you got to know what's going on with your patient because that's going to impact what we're going to what we're going to say about rehab, what we're going to recommend for um, treatment, that's going to affect what we recommend as far as if we're going to still recommend diets. We'll talk about that a little bit later too, but you need to know all of their, their medical history. Um, and that part of that comes from the chart and part of that comes from talking to them. Um, you need to know on your report, you need to include your diagnosis. And I know that sounds a little funny, but I read a lot of reports where it is not clear to me whether the swallow was within normal limits, whether there was oral dysphagia or there was pharyngeal dysphagia or oropharyngeal dysphagia. That needs to be pretty clear. <laughs> Do they actually have dysphagia? That needs to go in your report. If there's not a box to click, in almost every EMR I have ever been in, even if there's not a box, there is a narrative section. You can put it in the narrative section. So you've got to have that. Um, you've also got to have the severity of the impairment. Is it mild, moderate, severe, or something in between those? Mild to moderate, moderate to severe, profound. Um, and you want that based on something objective. Um, Teresa, I don't know what you use. We happen to use the dysphagia outcome severity scale. Um, it's not perfect, but what it means is since we all use it in our company uh, and it's objective, that when I say someone has severe dysphagia and Michelle says someone has severe dysphagia, it means the exact same thing. It's not based on how we feel about that patient. It doesn't, it's not based on fear. It's not based on anxiety. It's based on objective measures. Um, so that's, that's one thing that we use. Uh, I'm sure there are other scales that you can use out there, um, but you want it based on something objective, not just how you feel about that patient. Um, then you want information about the study. So this is the one thing that I see lacking in almost every report. You want the total number of trials administered. So instead of seeing the total number of trials administered, what I tend to see when I read a report is uh, the patient aspirated on thin liquids and nectar thick liquids. I don't know how many trials were given. I don't know what size of bolus were given. I, I have no idea. Um, so you want total number of trials administered as well as all the consistencies you tested. Um, because again, if you're going to recommend it, you have to have tested it. Or if you're going to say that someone can't have something, you need to have tested that as well. Um, and you want an exact accounting of what happened with each trial. Um, that may seem too tedious or too time consuming. Um, but if you're going to talk about, uh, and make, help make decisions, uh, about a patient, uh, eating and drinking and helping rehab their swallow, then I think you have to have that information in your report. Um, and it's just, it's a world of help to the clinician who is going to treat that patient later. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you do every, if you have a report where you list something about every trial, but I know we do. And I know the reports that I get uh, where the clinician does list that, it is just incredibly helpful. Oh yeah, I I'll, I do that, but I'll just to make it a little easier. I'll group kind of you know if they had three you know perfect swallows or something, I'll group those three together, or you know three consistent aspiration. I'll group those three together. 
Yeah, I'll do that too. Um, so uh, I guess you don't have to have every child spelled out if there is uh, a clear pattern. Um, uh, but something about each consistency, like if you try three teaspoons of something, you may want to group those together. But um, uh, you, you certainly want, if, if you switch from a, let's say a teaspoon to a cup or a cup to a straw or um, a mixed consistency to a mechanical soft, you want to have something for, for, for each of those. Um, and then you want in the report the effectiveness of any intervention strategies attempted. So this is the other thing that I see. If you don't have a clear report, your recommendations don't make sense to me. If you say the patient aspirated thin liquids, I think he should try a chin tuck and an effort will swallow. You may have a reason for that. And it may be a very sound reason. Uh, but if you're not spelling out why you did what you did and, and, and what you saw, then I don't know why you recommended those things. Um, and like we said before, almost any strategy you teach a patient can be harmful to them. And almost any strategy that you teach a patient can be maladaptive, uh, meaning it does what we don't want it to do. Um, instead of helping them, it, it can end up hurting them in the long run. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think of that guy that I had today, even, you know, I probably would have, I don't like to recommend thickened liquids all the time, but he did best on nectar, but he told me there wasn't a chance in hell that he was going to drink it anyways. So, you know, by reading my report, you would assume my recommendation would be nectar, but I spelled out, you know, that I am recommending thin based on yeah. patient refusal of, not, refusal is not the word I use, but I mean, patient was adamant that he was not going to drink nectar thick. So, um, you know, so that's why we went the route that we did. Yeah. And you want to spell stuff like that out. Um, I find that most clinicians, just like you did, will have had a conversation with the patient and it is a perfectly organic way that that happens. But if you don't include that in the report, then we don't know why you did what you did. If you're, that's in your report, um, then it saves the, the patient and the next clinician a, a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of trouble at, at the next stop. And so many of our patients are not just going home. They don't just go home and, oh, we're done. They're going somewhere else. There is a next level of care. And if they are going home, they may be getting home health or they may get, be getting outpatient there. Um, that diagnosis of dysphagia also will absolutely follow that patient and you see it affect treatment down the line. And this is kind of, we're getting a little bit off topic, but I see that a lot. Uh, you see a clinician who says, oh, this patient has a diagnosis of oropharyngeal dysphagia or they have a diagnosis of aspiration pneumonia. Um, therefore, I must be treating them because they're coughing. Um, that's not always true. <laughs> Um, so we need to be careful about what we're saying. And that diagnosis absolutely follows those patients and it affects their quality of life. There are, I don't know if you've ever run into this, but I've run into this a couple of times. There are um, centers, uh, so skilled nursing facilities that if a patient has a diagnosis of dysphagia, won't allow that patient to eat or drink certain consistencies uh, unless they have uh, a swallow study. Um, that's like I had an administrator tell me one time, well, we got you out here because um, they had a diagnosis of dysphagia from the hospital and they were just NPO to you came out here. Well, it turned out that they were NPO uh, in the hospital from a bedside and no offense to anyone's bedsides. I know lots of people like their bedsides and I still do a bedside. I don't want anyone to think that I, I don't, but um, we can't be making people NPO and recommending peg tubes from a bedside. Yeah. I think that also goes along with kind of the blanket term, and I'm using air quotes here, of aspiration precautions. Right. You put someone on aspiration precautions, and all of a sudden, 
the activities cart comes around and this person can't have jello or crackers or just like this random myriad of food that they all of a sudden can't have because they were deemed as an aspiration risk. Right. So, and that's the other thing I have specifically written things in reports before, because I want that report to follow the patient. I have seen patients who aspirate. I have seen patients who cough. I have seen patients who present as that patient that just scares you. You look at them at bedside and you go, this patient shouldn't be eating or drinking. They scare me to death. And then I do my study and I realize, you know what? They got a lot going on that's better than they do. That's and then not you just good. tuck your little emotions in your back pocket there, Matt. Right. And so what I want for, to follow them is I want my report to follow them. I want it stated very clearly. They're not aspirating. Yeah, they cough, but they're not aspirating. I want it stated very clearly um, that they are doing well enough to continue to eat and drink. That's a report I want to go with them. That feels good to me. Um, like I said before, we all got into this business, I think, to help pay patients, um, so to help people them. get better. So yeah, <laughs> a lot of this, I feel like maybe if I'm thinking about the way I've been talking, it, it, it may be do this because if you don't do it, it's bad for your patient. Well, there's a lot that we can do that helps our patient. If you write a good report, that goes with your patient too. And that's a way you can advocate for them when they're long gone. I mean, long gone from your building. They're not with you anymore. You don't see them months later, years later. Your study can absolutely help speak for your patient. Um, so that's that's another reason to make sure you're doing good reports. But again, we got off on um, a little bit of a tangent. Uh, the last thing you need in your report, we're going to get back on topic a little bit, is your recommendations. Um, and I like that we call them recommendations because that's what they are. They're not orders. Um, they're not edicts. They're not pronouncements. Um, they're recommendations. Uh, it's, patients don't have to do what we recommend. Doctors don't have to do what we recommend. These are recommendations based on the best of our knowledge. We've done a good report. We've got a solid foundation. We know what we're talking about. We make these recommendations. They are just that. They are recommendations. Um, and this is the I don't know for you, but for me, this is where you put every piece of yourself as a clinician together into this one part. It's, yes, we saw things. Um, I can sit with graduate students or undergraduate students and in about an hour get all of them 95% accurate at catching pharyngeal penetration and aspiration um, on swallow studies. That doesn't take a lot of brain power. It shouldn't take a lot of brain it power. It takes a trained monkey. Yeah, um, you can do it. Uh, anyone can do it. It's not difficult. I mean, you get a PT student come watch a modify, and they're like, hey, did that go in the airway? And you're like, yeah. That's not where our skill comes in. Our skill comes in at the recommendation section. You take everything you know about that patient. You take all of the research you know about speech-language pathology and dysphagia. You take every bit of medical knowledge that you have and conversing with doctors and talking to nurses and talking to the family, and you make recommendations that are going to stick with this patient. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.